Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. A fantastic Reformation weekend to all of you out there in podcast land. Of course, if you're listening to this after Reformation weekend, then I hope you had a great Reformation weekend. But regardless, uh, here we are. And I just wanted to give a brief update on the 360 conference. It was a lot of fun. And I was actually really encouraged that a few of you actually mentioned that you had been listening to the podcast and that you had been encouraged and you weren't just using it for a sleep aid, although that is definitely a useful uh, way to use this podcast. But I was really encouraged to meet some of you and and uh, exchange some emails with some of you after. So I just really appreciate that opportunity. It's just really encouraging to see people who are serious about studying the Bible and loving our Lord and serving him. It's, it's just a privilege to be a part of uh, those who serve our master. So I want to encourage you with that, and thank you to those who do listen to this podcast faithfully. Uh, and I did do a session at the 360 conference on baptism, and I was really thankful for the encouragement and feedback I got on that. I also did one on the Septuagint and Old Testament textual criticism, and I also did one on the angels, sons of God issue in Genesis 6. That was a combined effort. So all of that should be on the 360 website um, in a month or so. I also uh, requested that they actually put those on a podcast out there so that it's more accessible to individuals. I'll let you know if that becomes available in a, in a few weeks' time. But we are still proceeding on with baptism, and I have a couple more episodes that I want to get into for depth, and I hope it's helpful for us as we go through this. So to, to bring us into the discussion where we're at today, just a reminder that typically the traditional reform defense of paedobaptism rests on the certainty of the covenant of grace and how that unifies the Old and New Testaments. And basically everything runs through that grid, but there are other subsidiary points within that. Uh, for example, that there is uh, the one unified covenant sign that's circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. We looked at that last episode, and I think that it's really helpful to just compare those and say, does what Paedobaptists say, but is, is there a connection between circumcision and baptism like Paedobaptists say? Are they consistent in applying that connection? And really, what does scripture talk about with regard to circumcision and baptism? So I think that that was helpful to work through. Uh, also, the other major foundational point is that there is one people of God, that there's no distinction between the Israel and the church. And that's important because obviously you have a continuity of a mixed people of God. In other words, it's essential to a paedobaptist argument, the reformed paedobaptist argument, that there is a mixed uh, saved and unsaved community within the covenant community. And remember, and this is going to come up today in today's episode, that there's a difference between the elect and between the covenant people. And so they make that distinction. And I would obviously question whether scripture makes that distinction. And we'll look at even how they're inconsistent in applying that in a few passages. All right. So within this framework, there's also this idea that God deals with households 
rather than individuals. Now, this is a subsidiary point to the covenant of grace, but it, it's worth talking about in and of itself. So you take somebody like Robert Booth in his book, Children of the Promise, a biblical case for infant baptism. He rests his uh, defense of pedobaptism in five categories. The first one he lists is covenant theology. The second one is the continuity of the covenant of grace. The third one is the continuity of the people of God. The fourth one is the continuity of the covenant signs. And then the fifth and final evidence he gives is the continuity of households. So he says covenant theology is primary. And then we have the covenant of grace, people of God, covenant signs, and the households. Exactly what we've been talking about. I just wanted to give his actual uh, framework so that you know I'm not just making this up. This is even accepted by Paedo-Baptists in and of themselves. And so today we're going to focus on this household idea in the Old Testament and New Testament, the Old and New Testaments. Uh, we want to think through, does God deal with households in the New Testament in the same way that he dealt with Old Testament? Is the framework that a Reformed Paedo-Baptist comes up with the same? Now, we should say that as I've mentioned periodically, the traditional reform defense of pedobaptism, which is held by our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, is linking this idea of household baptisms with the idea of the covenant of grace. Now, we've talked about that, how there are some significant problems with this overarching framework of a covenant of grace. But it should be noted that Lutherans and Catholics also use the household baptisms as evidence for infant baptism, but they're going to do it in a slightly different way. And uh, Catholics and Lutherans, for example, they would argue more strongly that the households have to have infants in them and that, you know, this is the way that we should understand it. And a paedo-baptist from the Reformed tradition is going to be a little more careful. They're, in fact, they, they wouldn't even say that there are necessarily infants in the households that are baptized, but it's a much over, it's an overarching principle that's in play that God deals with households, not just with individuals. And so that's going to be a major part of the argument. But it, we do need to understand, even though we are focusing on the reformed approach to this argument, because that's really where my heart's at. That's where my friends are. And, and I, you know, really want to address that. The Lutherans and the Catholics will be using this similar kind of evidence. So a lot of what we talk about will cross pollinate with those theological viewpoints. Now, when we think about this, there are a couple foundational paedobaptist beliefs that need to be challenged. These are presuppositional largely in nature. And uh, not everyone would agree with the same exact principle, but, but it gives us a, a framework to understand what they're trying to argue. So we we need to look and see if these things are are true or not. So this this would be true of Lutherans, Catholics, and former Presbyterian Reformed approach. Is the assumption is that when you have a discussion or a mention of the whole household that no individuals are excluded from that. Okay, so that that's the first step. The second step is that when a household is mentioned, there are infants included. So the, these two foundational realities go hand in hand. On the one hand, when a whole household is mentioned, there are no individuals excluded. And we should assume that naturally there would be infants included in the household. 
So that's the two-pronged argument foundational reality. Now, we'll say more about how the more recent paedo-baptist from the Reformed approach has kind of shied away from this for good reason, because it's actually uh, pretty easy to show that there are exceptions to this in Scripture. So, for example, the, the idea that whenever the whole household is mentioned, there are no individuals excluded. Well, you actually can see that this is not the case in a, in a passage like 1 Samuel 1. So in 1 Samuel 1, 21 and 22, we're told that Hilkanah and his whole house or whole household there, same word, went up to sacrifice to the Lord. So in other words, verse 21 of 1 Samuel 1 just states very clearly uh, in Hebrew, and it translates with the same Greek words uh, in the Septuagint, that Hilkanah goes up with his whole house to sacrifice to the Lord uh, at the tabernacle there. And this is the prelude to, uh, to, to Samuel's birth. But in verse 22, it gives in Hebrew what's called a disjunctive clause, which means it's it's basically a parenthetical statement explaining um, something that you need to know. And so, in other words, uh, verse 22 provides supplemental information, which which is important to the overall narrative. So verse 21 says, the whole house went up. And in verse 22, it says, just kidding, the whole house did not go up. Hannah did not go up. That's verse 22. But Hannah did not go up. Now, this is kind of interesting because here we have a very clear example where the household, and I'm going to use this term uh, because that's what a pedo-baptist would use, the household formula, the household terminology is utilized here, but it's very clear that not everybody in the household is included. No, no question about that. You know, no way to argue against that. This is just clear evidence. So the, the whole premise here, the foundational idea that anytime you have a reference to the whole household, no individuals can be excluded. Well, obviously that's shown to be falsified. The second uh, major premise that when a household is mentioned, there have to be in infants included or there are most likely infants included. That is missing the boat for a little different of an issue. Uh, and this is important issue if you're trying to prove that there are infants being baptized because it's often brought out that there are no examples of infants being baptized. But in the Pado-Baptist world, the households are often utilized as examples of infants being baptized. For example, somebody might argue, so with all these households and families being baptized, are you telling me there was not one child that was baptized at that point or not one infant that was baptized? So that this is a integral part to the argument. But one of the things that's important is that this so-called household formula is actually utilized throughout scripture in different scenarios. So for example, in John 4:53, we read that Jesus healed a nobleman's wife and quote his whole house believed. Or in Acts 10:2, we read that Cornelius was a man who feared God with his whole house with the, with all the house. Or in Titus 1.11, we read that the false teachers are coming, and that's why they need to be uh, defended by the elders. And these false teachers are de described as individuals who subvert whole houses with their teaching. So when we read these examples, uh, John 4.53, Acts 10.2, Titus 1.11, to name a few, where this household formula is used, if you were to ask the question, well, does that include infants there? 
you would be laughed out of, you know, biblical interpretation class because it's obvious that the author is not intending you to ask the question, um, are infants included here? Because we know infants can't believe in the Lord, John 4.53. We know that infants cannot fear God, Acts 10.2. And we know that infants can't be deceived by false teachers in Titus 1.11. So, you take these, so why would we, when we get to baptism passages, ask the question, well, are infants being baptized here? It, it seems kind of self-serving to do that, uh, because you're taking a phrase that applies in many different scenarios, in many different passages, and we would say, well, very clearly this is referring to infants. And, but in all these other passages, it obviously can't refer to infants because it's a volitional act which would not apply to infants. So it should at least be acknowledged that a Baptist who, you know, is raising these issues, uh, you know, there are, there are some significant problems. If you're trying to argue so strenuously that the household formula has to include infants, but yet you ignore all of the other non-Baptistic passages, which include this household formula, and those can't include infants. So all that to say that there's obviously some major problems with the premise that the household has to include infants, because this household reference and formula is used throughout Scripture in places where infants would naturally not be included. Now, because of that, because of these obvious problems, um, and by the way, I think it's more of a problem for Lutheran and Catholic theologians because in the Reformed Paedo-Baptist world, they've actually taken a step away from that and they've said, okay, yeah, we can't prove that the household includes infants, so we're going to take this more broadly now and we're going to see it as applying to just the theological principle that God has covenanted with families, not just with individuals. And so remember, this is actually a subsidiary point to the covenant of grace. It all hinges on the covenant of grace for the Reformed Paedo-Baptist. That's why if there's no covenant of grace, then you're, you know, you're in trouble with regard to this. And so I refer you back to previous episodes with regard to that. But there's still, it's still worth talking about. Now, um, as an example of this, for example, the essential nature of of how how this works is uh, Pado Baptists will uh, quote uh, Jeremiah, who has you know some pretty famous writings on infant baptism, and in his words, he says, "quote Paul and Luke could under no circumstances have applied the Oikos formula if they had wished to say only adults had been baptized." End quote. So in other words, what he's arguing is that the holistic view of anytime you have an oikos Greek word uh, used, uh, a root in oikos, uh, oikia, oikos, he's arguing that it should be viewed holistic as God dealing with, with a household and not just uh, only referencing adults. However, not only would I argue that the usage of oikos has a lot more flexibility like we've shown from first Samuel and whatever, uh, and some of the other passages with John and Acts and whatever that you, you understand that there's, there's some flexibility there. But even in scripture itself, I would argue, and I'm not, uh, unique in arguing this very, very clearly. This is a, a method of argumentation that's picked up by others is that scripture actually is replete with examples of mentioning who is in play. 
So, for example, 1 Samuel 1 shows that whenever you have a reference to a household, uh, that doesn't necessarily include every individual. But when Scripture wants to talk about uh, children or even women, it both Old Testament and New Testament make that clear. So, in other words, for Jeremiah and other uh, Paedobaptists to argue that this is the natural way to refer to men, women, and children together, referring to the household— that's just not verifiable, scripturally speaking, because you have plenty of scenarios, both Old and New Testament, where you have men, women, and children mentioned specifically. So a couple examples in 1 Samuel twenty-two nineteen, where you have the uh, vengeance of Saul on the priests there in the city of Nob. It says, and Nob, the city of priests, he put to sword both man and woman, child and infant. So in other words, it's talking about, you know, how, uh, Saul spared nobody. He, he put to, put to death both the men, the women, the children, and the infants. So very clearly the narrator is concerned with making sure we know children are involved in the story. Joshua 8.35, there was, uh, this is Joshua 8.35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. Now, that should be enough, but he goes on and says, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So he could have just said the assembly of Israel, but he wanted to make sure that we understood women and children were also included in that. And you can cross-reference Second Chronicles 20, verse 13 for a similar phrase. In Jeremiah 40, verse 7, you also have special reference to men, women, and children. You have there uh, reference to when all the captains of the forces were in the open country, their men heard that the Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, governor of the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile in Babylon. So we could go through other examples as well, but I think it's just worth pointing out that it's natural for the narratives to talk about men, women, and children when they're important. Similarly, same principle applies in the New Testament, Matthew 14, 21. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, uh, similar thing going on in Matthew 15, 38. Uh, Acts 21.5, and this is this is interesting because this is actually in the book of Acts where we have reference to the baptisms and, and most of the debated passages come there. Well, here you have Luke, the same historian, and he, he is not shy uh, in both Luke or Acts to include uh, men, women, and children when he needs to. So in, in 21.5, he says, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Now, this is Luke. He's known for his detail. He's, I mean, again, he could have just said uh, the whole household, or he could have just said uh, all of the people, according to the Paedobaptist view, and that would be fine. But what he said, what he does say is everyone, the women and children included, accompanied us until we were outside the cities. Now, what's the, what's really important here is if you backtrack to some of the baptism passages, Luke actually, he actually includes the fact that women were baptized. So in Acts 8, 12, it says, Now when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. 
Okay, so Luke himself talks about how women were also included in the number of people being baptized in, in Acts 8.12. Now, you just have to ask a question here. I think this is an honest question to ask. If Luke, as an author, is not ashamed or afraid to include women and children in his historical narratives, then why does, if he's giving an account of all the people that are baptized, why does he say men and women were baptized in Acts 8.12, but he does not say children? were baptized. He does not say infants were baptized. And so that is a valid question to ask because Luke uh, is the one we're dealing with in these household baptisms. And if he is, you know, not ashamed and, and doesn't shy away from mentioning uh, women and children, then in contrast to what the paedo-baptist would argue, he would argue that that a Baptist has to prove that children are not included my question would be, well, it seems to me the evidence of the historical narratives is that Scripture, and especially Luke, uh, has precedent for including women and children when uh, when they are important to the narrative. And so, if he is not including that, then what's you know what's what's the problem with that? It seems like the uh, the need to prove something is on the other side with regard to that. But remember, it all circles back to the assumption of the covenant of grace, is that the assumption is that it would be a major change to exclude the children from the covenant, and so there would be cries of outrage and shock. But remember, if we're dealing with two covenants that are uh, contemporaneous, it wouldn't actually be that much of an issue. In fact, just as a side note here, one of the things I often think about, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but uh, when when everyone you know, talks about this being the unanswerable challenge for Baptists. They say, well, where was the cry, the outrage, if this was such a massive change uh, where the children are no longer included in the covenant, you know, how how do we not see any evidence of that being a controversy in the New Testament? But of course, if you think about it from the way that I've explained this, is that these aren't contradictory covenants. The Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are not, uh, they're not, uh, replacing one another. It's the new covenant that's replacing the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And so you would have people who are circumcised. So, you know, if, if you were to go to a Jew of the first century, for example, and say, how come your children are not receiving the covenant sign? They would say, what are you talking about? Our children are circumcised. I mean, th- that for them wouldn't even be an issue. They would say, of course, our children are circumcised. Uh, that is our covenant sign. And so, it, it really, at least in the way that um, we see it described in scripture, uh, you see people who are fulfilling uh, the law, even they're keeping circumcision, and that is viewed as okay, as long as they don't force that to be a gospel issue, and as long as they don't force that upon Gentiles. That's, that's the issue. Uh, and so they still are able to circumcise their children. So that's uh, remember, it all goes back to the assumption of the covenant of grace. They assume that there has to be a replacement uh, of the covenant sign from circumcision to baptism. All right. So that uh, foundational point being said, another another key point to just bring up here as a foundational reality is that the New Testament describes family conversions as a abnormal event. So family conversions are actually depicted as being an abnormal event. Event. So in Luke 12, 52 through 53, Jesus says, from now on, and you might say, well, what does that mean from now on? Well, he's saying from now on, from this time on, from my coming on, 
In one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, the reason that this is important is that, again, in the Pado, in the Pado Baptist argument, God deals with households and that this is the norm and that we should expect household conversions to take place. And that would include then infants being baptized, uh, normally as God deals with not just individuals on an individual level, but also the families. But Luke shows here, quoting the words of Jesus here, that from now on, there is an expected major division in families. And it's not, it's not as if this is not validated by experience. I mean, we just think about, um, it's actually quite rare to see entire families coming to Christ at the same time. In fact, I was just thinking through my mind, do I know anybody that, that, uh, their whole family came to Christ at the same time? And I think, if I remember the story correctly, I do know one individual out of all of my knowledge of Christians where, where one family came to Christ out of Catholicism all at the same time. And in fact, they were all baptized together, which was really awesome. Uh, such a great example, but that is the only example I can think of. And maybe, maybe that, maybe that happened with your family. Who knows? That would be, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, if, if that is, you know, your family history, but it's pretty rare. More often, um, even in the early church, you had people being saved and then ostracized from their families. And so that's something that Jesus always showed as being the standard for embracing him. So your, your new family is the church. And so that's the, that's the picture that Christ drills into his followers. Even Paul later on when he's talking to the church at Corinth in first Corinthians seven, he says that if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then you let them leave, which seems to be that that's a common occurrence uh, at the church of Corinth where you have uh, believers coming to Christ and their spouse wants to leave. They want to divorce. And Paul says, let that happen because you can't control whether somebody is saved or not. And so if Paul even gives instructions to allow that to happen, uh, I think it's a little too much to try to say that household conversions are the norm or that's how, how we ought to view, view life. It definitely seems like scripture paints a much more accurate picture with regard to just the rejection that a believer is going to undergo when they follow Christ. Now, that's all with regard to general presuppositions. I think it's important to talk about that because a lot of times just generically, the the pedo baptist argument floats along with these kinds of understandings that hey family conversions are normal and god deals with the family this way and there's a household formula but i think if you actually look at the biblical evidence like we went through there are problems with that but i don't want to stop there because i think we can actually look at the biblical passages that are brought up to to evidence these household formulas, these household baptisms, and actually show that there's evidence to support a credo Baptist uh, um, way of interpreting things much more than a pedo Baptist. And I think that that's uh, what we ought to do is examine passages of scripture. Uh, Lord willing, if, if at all possible, remove the biases, remove the systems. Now, again, that's really hard for covenant theology because you have a system uh assuming the covenant of grace, right? And so 
In fact, that becomes evident even as you read interpreters of the household baptisms in Acts. That's, that is an assumption, but it needs to be a challenged assumption. But if you just look at the details of the text themselves, they, they argue for themselves. So let's jump in and look at some of these. So Acts 2, verses 38 and 39, major passage of scripture that's dealt with here. You have Peter uh, talking to the people of Israel who, who, you know, are asking what they should do. Um, they, what, what should our disposition be? Like we've made a huge mistake crucifying our Messiah and what, what should we do? So Peter says to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized. So again, repentance, baptism linked every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the verse that everyone is, is going to quote from the Paedo-Baptist tradition in verse 39. It says, for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord has calls to himself. Now, most Paedo-Baptists don't quote the last part because it kind of totally ruins everything. But uh, mo- mainly they'll just quote the first part saying the promises for you and your children and just leave it there. But the last part kind of contradicts their point. So uh, in in their chapter on, you know, anal- uh, chapter of analysis uh, talking about this passage, uh, Joel Beakey and Lanning say this, quote, significantly, these words of Peter declare that certain things had not changed and would not change in the new era. The pattern of God's dealing with believers and their children as old as creation itself would continue as a constitutional principle of the visible church, end quote. So let's just ask a couple questions here. Uh, what actually is being talked about in verse 39? What is the promise? Well, again, referring to Beaky and Lanning, they say, first, quote, this is quote, first, it is clear that Peter speaks of the promise as rhetorical shorthand for the covenant of grace which embodies the promise of salvation that he calls upon his hearers to embrace. This promise is the same as the promises made to Abraham, to David, to Israel, and even to the Gentiles. It includes the promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins referred to in the previous verse. End quote. Okay, so again, remember, covenant of grace comes up everywhere because it's so essential to the Reformed argument, even, even in talking about the households. So covenant of grace is essential. Now, he says this is the same promise that was made to Abraham, David, Israel, and the Gentiles. But I would say that the promise actually is very specifically identified with the new covenant. And I think you can see that. You don't need to say, oh, this is rhetorical shorthand for the covenant of grace, because you can actually just do a simple word search. You can even do it in Bible Gateway. Just search it in English for promise, and you'll actually see that Peter had already talked about what the promise was in Acts 2.33. Uh, the promise is the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense because you just saw the Spirit being poured out on believers. Acts 2.17, Peter is quoting Joel saying that this is what's going to happen, is that Spirit will be poured out upon you. And this is also what Jesus himself had promised in Luke 24.49. Remember, Luke and Acts are originally one book. They're one uh, history and Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. So Luke is intentionally making this connection in Luke 24, 49, Jesus promises, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. And then in Acts 1, 4, Jesus sends his uh, disciples to Jerusalem and he tells them to wait for the promise of the father. So there's a very, very clear vocabulary connection in Luke and Acts about what the promise actually is. And it's linked to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit which, by the way, 
is a new covenant ministry. It's uh, we've talked about this uh, in depth in previous episodes, but the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit is linked with the new covenant. So, in other words, it, it's not the same experience uh, as those of the Old Testament. So, for Beaky and Lanning to say that. This is Peter talking about how things are not changing, how the promise, which was in the Old Testament and, and applied to the Old Testament believers is still applied to the New Testament believers. That's ridiculous because the promise is 100% the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's very clear. You just trace what Peter's talking about. And we know that the Holy Spirit is uniquely operative in the New Testament. Joel, in other words, Joel talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit wouldn't really be a great prophecy if that's already what the Old Testament saints were experiencing. And so Peter is just saying, hey, this is the promise for you as part of the new covenant. This is this is what you know you need to understand. So uh, again, I think it's uh, very clear. There's contextually no doubt about that. And I think uh, Beaky and Lanning are falling prey to their system by saying that this is talking about the idea of the covenant of grace and all that. So who are the recipients of the promise? And here are, here's where we, you know, see very clearly that the system kind of falls apart a little bit because it lists three groups, you and your children, and then also those who are far off. Now that could refer to either future generations, but most likely it's actually referring to the Gentiles there. Now notice that these phrases are actually modified by a group or modified by a phrase, and each each of these groups is modified by this phrase. Uh, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay, that is a part of the text. Okay, no question about that. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So what is being talked about there? Is this the effectual calling of God? So in other words, if you just take this phrase as what it says, uh, it says the promise is given to those who are called by God. Now, this is where I said there's some inconsistency in the traditional Reformed theology because on the one hand, the Reformed Paedobaptist wants to say that Acts 2.39 is showing there's continuity of God's promise to believers and their children. Uh, but this verse is qualifying that the promise is only to those who are called by God. So in other words, it's it's talking about salvation. In other words, uh, can you say that the effectual calling of God is non-operative in some individuals? Uh, I don't think you can. So if this is the qualifying phrase talking about who the promise is actually for, which again is the spirit, the spirit is going to be for believers, for those who are called by God. So if that is the case, then is that, is, is this a verse to support baptizing somebody who's not called by God or who is, who is not elect? as it were. And again, just to be clear, this is the inconsistency is remember, there's a difference in the reformed paedobaptist uh, tradition for the covenant community and the elect. Okay. So that's, but here Acts 2.39 is very clearly referring to the elect. Very clearly. It's saying that this promise is for those whom the Lord calls to himself. That's the qualifying phrase. Now, again, the, the paedobaptist, I think I've read you know, quite a few chapters, and I don't think anyone ever talks about this because it's so devastating to the normal interpretation of this uh, passage because uh, for a paedobaptist because they need it to be a generic reference to the covenant community, uh, the continuity between the Old Testament. But here, Peter is very clearly saying that, you know, these groups, you, your children, and those who are far off, 
but that's limited by saying those who God has called to himself. Okay, so that's just the exegesis of the passage, and you have to deal with that if you're going to um, work around that. So in other words, Acts 2.39 is saying the promise is for those who are called, i.e. those who are elect, i.e. those who are saved. And what is the promise? The Holy Spirit. So it all goes together. It all makes sense. It's cohesive with what we understand um, the new covenant to under, uh, to uh, reflect. Now, it's also important that we just observe in Acts 2.41, immediately after this, we see that those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So, paedo-baptists often, the reason I'm making note of this is paedo-baptists often argue that the majority of the baptisms in Acts, in the book of Acts, include families. But that's technically incorrect because here we have 3,000 baptisms which do not include family members and they are all specifically predicated on having heard the word of God, internalized it, repented, and then been baptized. So I think that's important is that here, here we have the initial uh, baptism, as it were, and it's one where people have repented and there's no mention of family members. These are individuals who are, who are submitting to Christ and, and being baptized. Now, that's the starting point for this whole discussion in many of these uh, instances, but there are a couple other passages that we're going to try to work our way through because I don't want to uh, have this episode be like four hours. So uh, we're going to go quickly through these, but I think it, we don't need to spend too much time on these because it's, the details are kind of obvious when you read through them. So there are five primary examples that are usually given of household baptisms. So Cornelius in Acts 10, Lydia in... Uh, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, the synagogue leader Crispus in Acts 18, and Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, all of those passages, Cornelius, uh, it's, sometimes he's not included, uh, with strict household baptisms because the word oikos isn't used in his family's conversion, but it's used earlier on and he, it's, it's clear that his family and those in his household are involved. So even though the actual word isn't used around his baptism, he's still included in the discussion at times. So we'll start lo- looking with him. So in Cor- Cornelius's case, Acts 10, we are told in verse 1 that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And he's described in verse 2 as a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So right there, we need to observe that his household is mentioned there as being those who fear God along with him. Okay, so that's important. Now, going down in verse 33, uh, he uh, Cornelius is talking here to Peter and he says, So I sent it once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear that you... Uh, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So in other words, this is Cornelius speaking on behalf of his household, and he's saying, we're all here to hear what you have to say. So in other words, again, including the household here in this language, saying we're here to listen, and it in- includes his people in that. The, you know, the straightforward reading of this text indicates they're very interested in having um, something to hear about this. So then verse 44 and following It says, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. Uh, Now, again, 44 there, you have all those who heard the word. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is operating on those who hear and implied understand. It's not as if the picture here, again, 
isn't infants who are just in in proximity here and you have them hearing noises and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. No, those who hear the word are those who are embracing it because they believe it. And then in verse 47 and 48, uh, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is, I mean, a very straightforward. What you have is the whole household is described as those who fear God. They all line up to hear Peter's message. No indication of any, any naysayers. And so, uh, the household is baptized. Those who are with Cornelius. And of course, uh, we would assume that those who are baptized are the same ones who feared God and the same ones who heard Peter's message. I mean, that would be the natural assumption that there's, that there's volitional response on behalf of the, of the people here. Uh, again, just taking it as a straightforward, uh, reading. Now we have Lydia, the next one mentioned in Acts 16, and we see that Paul arrives at Philippi and in verse 13, we're told on the Sabbath day, he went, uh, we went outside. This is Luke giving his, uh, play by play, as it were. We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there to be a place of prayer. Now, a couple of observations that we can make from that is that Paul normally goes to the synagogue to reason on the Sabbath. So apparently there was no synagogue. Uh, and so he's trying to figure out, okay, where would the people of God, uh, congregate? And so he says, well, there's probably a place of prayer by the river. So they go out there looking for God fearers. And so we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together and one who had heard us. Now, again, who had heard us was a, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira and a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, all that we're told in this narrative, which is super short, all we're told is that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you judge me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So that's the whole narrative. And so this is probably in my mind, uh, the only, the only narrative of baptism where you could, you could argue for uh, what the Pado Baptist is trying to argue for. And that's that, you know, the household didn't exercise faith, uh, and they still were bap baptized. But the issue is that it's such a compressed narrative. And that's typical of, of biblical narrative is you're not going to include every single detail. And remember, we are in Acts 16 here. So the assumption is that, uh, you know, you're, as a writer, you're not going to include every single detail because you're assuming that people have read the first 15 chapters and they've linked all the, the, the idea of repentance and faith with baptism. Um, so you look at Lydia, for example, when it says Lord opened her heart. Yeah, I, I think everybody would honestly have to say, okay, yeah, she is believing uh, in the message that Paul's given and that's her motivation for being baptized. Now, the other detail here is that her family is with her at the river there. Uh, her household is there at the river and they're listening to what Paul is saying um, because it says that she's baptized there with her household and then she asked them to go back to her house. So just on a straightforward reading, it seems like the natural understanding of this text would be that her family is there. So they are associated with the God-fearers already and they too are listening to the message that Paul is giving. Now, granted, I will fully acknowledge that that is filling in some of the white space, but that's, I think, a very 
uh, natural filling in of the white space uh, of this text because it's so compressed, right? So it's one of those things where if we were trying to fit what a pedo-baptist would want to fit in there, saying, oh, the household either includes children or people who aren't, aren't responding to uh, Paul's message in faith, that's filling in a lot more. Uh, and I don't think that that's fair, given the fact that all the other baptism narratives, except for Lydia, include specific reference to believing, believing and rejoicing um, with regard to what Paul talks about. So I will admit 100% that Lydia's uh, a very compressed narrative, and there is not even a discussion of belief here at all, but simply that Lydia's heart is opened. But I think we can give the benefit of the doubt, given that Luke's theology is very clear on this as he goes through the history of baptism. And so I think if we do uh, work through this honestly, uh, I, I, I don't see this as, as being strong evidence at all. I'm, I'm definitely willing to hear counter arguments on this passage, but it's so compressed. I would, I would say it seems like special pleading to me. Now, on that note, we have these other passages, which are, are very clear. So for example, the Philippian jailer, just a few, uh, few verses later at the end of Acts 16, we're told that they spoke the word of God to him, the, uh, the Philippian jailer, that's Paul and his imprisoned accomplice, Silas. And so you have in verse 33, they, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now we could stop there and say, look, evidence for the fact that he's baptized and his family is baptized along with him. They, they aren't professing belief. They're just being, they're just being baptized. But in verse 34, it explains, it says, then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the simple question to ask would be this, uh, is, is it natural? Is it normal? Is it expected for someone to reject the gospel and rejoice in the fact that somebody else has accepted it? No, that's complete nonsense. John 1 is very clear that those who are in darkness hate the light because their wickedness is exposed. Uh, Jesus himself said, don't be, don't be uh, surprised when people hate you because they hate me. So there, there is this element very clearly that unbelievers don't rejoice over the fact that somebody else has embraced Christ when they themselves reject Christ. That's just not how it works. So when the text says that the entire household was rejoicing, I mean, let's just be honest and fair here, shall we, right? I mean, um, could you do that if you had rejected, uh, rejected that? In fact, you know, that's, that's one of those things where, uh, it's often brought up to an atheist, you know, why, why are you so adamant about arguing against Christianity and why are you so upset with Christians? Because, you know, why don't you just leave us alone and let us be happy? But that's not how sin works. That's not how uh, sinful human nature works. And so if this family uh, has rejected what the Philippian jailer has embraced, a submission and complete uh, allegiance to Christ, then they're not going to be rejoicing with him with that. That's, that's as simple as it is. And so it, the assumption would be that they also embraced uh, Paul's message. I think that that uh, it seems to be very clear. Now we go on in Acts 18, we uh, come across Crispus, and this was in Paul's 
uh, interaction in Macedonia, you have Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who this is uh, Acts 18.8. And very specifically, it says Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So in other words, the whole household is said to believe in the Lord with Crispus. And then many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So in other words, the household is specifically said to believe with Crispus. And so they're also baptized. So very clear belief uh, is a part of both Crispus and the household. And then they're all baptized. Now, one that's often brought up as supposedly a slam dunk evidence that we have a whole household um, of baptism without reference to uh, belief whatsoever is in First Corinthians one sixteen. You have uh, Paul making passing reference to the fact that he didn't baptize anyone except he says I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and he makes that as a side note. So people often bring this up that uh, you know you, you, it's likely you have children um, in this household. Again, this is presupposition, but likely children would have been baptized by Paul with regard to this. But here's the here's another interesting thing is the details just don't support this. And again, it's very, very rare that a Paedo-Baptist will give the, uh, in this case, uh, give the full picture. Because in 1 Corinthians 16, you actually have the household of Stephanus described. So yes, Paul did baptize the household of Stephanus, but who are who who's in the household of Stephanus? Well, in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 and 16, you see the reference here. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts, plural, in Achaia. Okay, so apparently the household of Stephanus all had converted. Okay, so they had exercised allegiance to Christ and so were baptized. And then he actually describes them and he says, they, plural, the whole household, has devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So just honestly, uh, who is the household of Stephanus? Well, they were those who converted to Christ. They were the first ones to convert and they are the ones who are devoted to Christ in service of the saints. So let, let, let's just ask, is that a definition of a believer? Yes, it is. And so when we think through this issue, um, is 1 Corinthians 1 a description of a, a non-believer being baptized? Well, any, any normal consideration of the evidence would have to say no. What we do have in 1 Corinthians 16 is exactly the description of a believer that we would expect. And so, again, when we think about all of these instances, these household baptism texts, you know, I, I really think that not only is there no evidence for infant baptism in them, but I would say that the evidence that we do have very clearly links the idea of belief, conversion, volitional allegiance to Christ as a prerequisite for baptism. The only possible exception to that could be Lydia's household baptism. I- I'm willing to give that. But that uh, that story is so abbreviated that all we read is that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Uh, now, there's belief isn't stated there, uh, no description of who is in her family, uh, but it seems to be implied, I think that we can uh, argue this strongly from the text, that they are with her, they're hearing, because they all get baptized together, and then they go back to the house together. So it seems as if they're at least able to understand Paul's message and reject or accept it. So I, w- I would say... Uh, when we look at the details of the text, there's there's just 
not much there with regard to uh, defense of uh, people who do not make a profession of faith being baptized. Uh, the families are rejoicing together, accepting what has been taught. They are believing together. This is uh, major evidence for the belief, the foundational belief for a cradle Baptist view, that belief is a prerequisite for baptism. Now, I, I do, I do hope that in, in looking through, looking through that evidence, that it, it does at least, you know, prompt the mind to say, okay, yes, I, I do think that there is definitely some presuppositional things at work here. Uh, because if you, if you're going through those texts, uh, you have to have a, a presupposed system at play, uh, in order to prove what you're trying to say that they're proving. If that makes sense, it's uh, well, and and like I showed, just even from Beaky's quote, uh, it's it's the covenant of grace that that's ultimately assumed again in all of these foundational um, texts. Now, I do want to say one more word about uh, children being addressed in Scripture, because in the same breath, often Pado Baptist literature will talk about Ephesians six. Uh, talking about children, uh, honoring your father and mother, obeying your father and mother, Colossians 3. So it's often brought up by, uh, these, the Pado Baptist, uh, arguments and polemics to say, well, children are being addressed in Paul's letters that shows that children are being viewed as a part of the church. And of course, that would fit with the, uh, Old Testament paradigm of children being a part of that covenant community as well. Now, I just want to say that the word that's used in Ephesians and Colossians is not the word for infant, but it's just the word, the generic word for children, which could actually be used of anyone of any age, just uh, FYI. But it's clear in context we're talking about young children. And it's clear from the surrounding context, I, I would argue, that in Ephesians especially, uh, but I mean Colossians as well, but Ephesians primarily, since that's often the uh, the text that's brought up, uh, is Paul is talking to believers. He assumes in Ephesians 1 that these individuals have been sealed by the Spirit. They have forgiveness of sins. They have been dead but made alive. Ephesians 2, remember, Ephesians 2 is actually connected to Ephesians 1. There's no, there's no major break there. It's part of the same theological point. So Paul assumes that he's talking to believers. In Ephesians 1 and 2, and then in Ephesians 4.32, you also have uh, the understanding, the presupposition that Paul is talking about those who have their sins forgiven. Now, so here's the thought experiment. If, just assuming a credo-baptist uh, understanding for a moment, how else would Paul talk to, to believing children? Would he have to say, would he have to say, uh, now, concerning believing children, make sure that you, no. Why wouldn't he just say concerning children? This is, this is your understanding. You must be uh, submissive to your parents. You must obey them until you are no longer children. I mean, that, that is the obligation. Now, the assumption would be that there are children who are believers, which is actually, that's always been the case. There are, I mean, it's not as if there's a magical formula where you can only believe in Christ when you are 18 years old or something like that. Uh, there are, there have been, uh, even Samuel, I would say, is a good example of a child who is a faithful, uh, cognitive, completely understands, submits, and embraces following Yahweh. So 
in both Old and New Testaments, I would say that the assumption is that you have individuals who embrace Christ early on in life and they need instruction. And so to, to argue that just because there's no modifier of believing children really kind of misses the point here. And I think is again, special pleading. I, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's not really a, a, a valid argument to begin with, but I would say, if, if that's the standard we're using, why wouldn't Paul have to use the same argumentation? Why wouldn't he have to say believing slaves or believing wives? It's, uh, in my mind, it's a bit disingenuous to assume that the children being referred to are not believing children. I, I just have, have, uh, no reason to suspect otherwise in, in those texts. So when we think about this whole discussion, obviously the, the presuppositions are super important. And that's why we spent a lot of time going through those at the beginning of the episode. Uh, and it all kind of floods together. But in conclusion, when we, when you look at the New Testament household passages that are supposed to be evidence for the continuity between Old Testament households, embracing the covenant sign, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament, the details of the household passages in the New Testament really show that the families that were baptized together embraced the message of the gospel together. And that's why it's, in my mind, that's one of the reasons why they, they stand out as such a beautiful demonstration of God's grace is because that's actually not normal. That's not a normative experience for a family to embrace the gospel together. That's not normal. Um, and I know that that, you know, is, is totally against what the Pado Baptist argument is, but I would just point out that scripture seems to be very clear on that issue. We talked about Luke 12. We also just in experience, like families normally do not come to Christ together. So when scripture is making a big point about saying, hey, the whole family embraced Christ, that's a way to glorify God saying, praise the Lord that this whole family came to Christ. That, that's a, that's a huge demonstration of God's grace in saving, saving full families that way. So when we, when we look at these things without presuppositions, without just trying to observe the details, of the text, I would say that it actually supports the idea that baptism uh, requires a profession of faith and allegiance to Christ prior to being baptized. So I hope that's helpful to think through. But I encourage you, obviously, to look through the text yourself, evaluate them, read them. Don't just take my word for anything, but actually look at the details. So I hope it's helpful for you. Uh, look forward to a few more episodes on baptism, then we'll get into something else. I enjoyed, like I said before, meeting many of you at the conference. And if you uh, want more on the conference for next year, you can go to shepherds360.org. If you want to look at some of the articles that I've written, you can look at petergaming.com uh, in the blog archive that I have there. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.